2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amari Averett-Phillips, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Amani Owens about her new book, Turn the World Upside Down, Empire and Unruly Forms of Black, Culture, Black Folk Culture in the U.S. and the Caribbean. Dr. Amani Owens,
3: welcome to the show. Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. It's, it's a pleasure. I, I really enjoyed the book. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, but Dr. Owens, I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us a little bit about yourself.
3: Oh, okay. Well, um, I'm Brooklyn born and raised Brooklyn stand up, you know, I had to get that in there. Um, and uh, both of my parents are historians, they're both academics. Uh, and so uh, in my life, I always knew that this the life of the mind could be a possibility to pursue. Uh, but when I was younger, I always thought that I would be a visual artist. I actually went to um, LaGuardia High School for music and art and the performing arts. And so I thought, you know, I was going to go to conservatory and take that path. Um, I also uh, was trained in classical piano. So that was another area. Um, But uh, I couldn't shake sort of this love of literature that I had. And so I ended up uh, going to Rutgers and um, studying with uh, the great Cheryl Wall, who really is the person responsible for uh, encouraging me to pursue that path and to go to graduate school. And the idea that um, I didn't have to give up sort of these other interests I had in uh, and music and art, you know, I could write about it all, and I could um, really reckon with the way that the writers I was interested in, like Langston Hughes, or Hurston, were immersed in the arts themselves. Um, and so, um, so I graduated from Rutgers um, with a BA in English, uh, minor in psychology, which I could talk more about. <laughs> Um, And then I went to uh, Columbia and got my PhD in English and comp lit. And the comp lit side of it is actually um, rather important because that is what became the foundation of my method for looking at works in different languages and just having um, kind of the institutional support to do that. Um, I was also part of the Center for Jazz Studies at Columbia. Uh, and that is where I continue to kind of hone my interest in um, in music and uh, just be in conversation, uh, interdisciplinary conversation with scholars who are thinking about it, uh, whether it was from the perspective of musicology or I think we had some cognitive scientists come in one time. Um, and so the Center for Jazz Studies was really important to my um just sort of intellectual formation. Um, so from there, you know, I'm speeding along, but know that there was a lot of like thinking and struggle in this. But so I I got my PhD from Columbia. And um, oh, within that, I did uh, a scholar in residence at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Um, and uh, that was just a time to... Um, just finish my dissertation in a different setting and just be supported by um, people who were really invested in my success. And then um, I did a postdoc at the uh, Center for African American Studies at Princeton. Um, so I'm fortunate in my career to have had a lot of time to um, be able to do the, the kind of work that I do, which, which is very archival Uh, requires a lot of sort of uh, travel and a lot of thinking about how to put all the different pieces together. So um, I think that's where I began in telling you about myself. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, what brought
2: you to this particular project? I
3: think I have to go back to my uh, Brooklyn upbringing. So um, of course, you know, this project began as a dissertation and all of that, but um, it was really my Growing up in Brooklyn in a community that was um, a Black community that was uh, people from the South and folks from the Caribbean, right? Um, uh, In fact, I think Flatbush, Brooklyn has like one of the largest Caribbean populations outside of the Caribbean, right? So I was thinking about these intersections between African-American experience and the experiences of Caribbean migrants. Uh, pretty early on, um, and it was something that, you know, I became, I became curious about um, why this was often a kind of uh, submerged history that many of the figures that we talk about that are kind of these icons of, uh, you know, African-American history have uh, Caribbean ancestry, like, you know, Malcolm X, <laughs> and, uh, Maya Angelou singing Calypso and things like that. Um, so part of it was just becoming interested in, um, the submerged, you know, histories of figures that we already know. And then, um, when I went to college and graduate school, um, well, in college I studied, uh, French and I began reading these Francophone Caribbean writers like Maurice Condé and, um, Guisson and, and others, um so I knew I was interested in that. Um, and then, uh, when I came to Columbia and I was, um, I studied with Bryn Edwards and Bob O'Meally and and Farrah Griffin, and they really supported, um, my, you know, eagerness to find out, well, uh, we know, uh, we can always know more about the Harlem Renaissance, but what was happening in say Haiti, what was happening in Cuba around this time? Um, and I took a class with Bryn Edwards that I think was called uh, Poetics of the African Diaspora or something like that. Um, and I was introduced to uh, Nicolás Guillén, who is a Cuban, became this almost poet laure- laureate of Cuba, who I write about in the book. Um, but then I they kept mentioning this writer named Eric Walren. So every time I would read sort of like an, an- anthology of the Harlem Renaissance or a critical account of just, like, the literary scene and, like, who was going to the parties and stuff like that. Uh, Eric Walwyn would always pop up. And I'm like, well, who is this guy? Um, so it turns out Eric Walren was um, one of the writers, um, like many of them, who was heralded during the Renaissance but who sort of kind of disappears later. And he was born in Barbados, and he migrates to... Um, Panama with his uh, with his mother um, at a young age during the construction of the Panama Canal. Right, so this is from 1903 to 1914, and the bulk of the labor being done on the on the canal, which is a United States project, but most of the hard labor was done by these Caribbean migrants, uh, and so Walman is a part of this migration. And he ends up uh, sort of growing up on the canal zone and documenting um, just what life was like there. And one of the things that he documents was how dangerous and deadly the labor was, all of these explosions. um, They had gotten yellow fever somewhat under control then, but that had been responsible for a lot of the deaths when the French were trying to build the canal Um, and, and... You know just things like you know falls from high places and you can imagine um because they are cutting a canal from the caribbean sea to the pacific ocean right (laughs) so um so out of that experience of being actually a journalist in the panama canal zone um he comes to harlem and gets involved in the literary scene there um And is often compared to uh, Gene Toomer in terms of kind of the richness of his writing, his uh, interest in sort of the everyday folk. And he writes this book called uh, Tropic Death that is about all of these deaths that he's been documenting in the Canal Zone. And so... um, I'd seen uh, Eric Walren be mentioned, but I'm like, why don't people talk more about this guy? You know, it's fascinating. Uh, At the time, Tropic Death was out of print. So um, Bryn Edwards, of course, he reached in his drawer and gave me like a Xerox copy of of Tropic Death. And that that became sort of the kernel for what would become uh, the dissertation. And the main concerns of the dissertation, which were... Uh, not only like how did, you know, Caribbean writers contribute to the Harlem Renaissance, but how does um, thinking about those writers kind of change our framework, you know, geographical and otherwise, for thinking about um, what the main concerns of Black modernity were, you know, for writers during this time. And one of Walron's main concerns um, is just the specter of U.S. imperialism, right? The U.S. building the canal in Central America, um, having all of these um, Caribbean workers uh, engaged in this dangerous labor, paying them uh, in silver while the white workers were paid in gold. Right. So basically bringing Jim Crow to the canal zone um, and sort of what that meant to structure our understanding of This uh, historical moment, the first few decades of the 20th century, um, around an understanding of U.S. empire and the difficulty um, often that African-Americans had with sort of reckoning with that, right? So what does it mean for our own claims to citizenship when we have to reckon with the fact that uh, the United States, right, is now the major imperial power in the hemisphere. Um, So it really began with, uh, or really kind of crystallized around Eric Walwyn and tropic death. Um, But then later on, I started reading um, more and more of Sylvia Winter. And so the title of the book actually comes from a Sylvia Winter quote, where she is talking about um, dancers, dancers, She's talking about during the period of slavery, but the um, Christmas Jean Canoe Festival in Jamaica and how that persists to this day and the ways in which um, the dancers cultivated uh, not only crops, but cultivated this rich relationship to the land and to the earth. And through their rituals, through their um, songs, through their performances, they turned the world upside down. Right. They imagined a world in which um, they were on top. Right. Uh, so, this kind of inversion of colonial power. And um, to me, that seemed like an appropriate figure for what all of the uh, writers in this book are interested in is that project of turning the world upside down.
2: And so, what is folk culture? Um... How is this typically thought of and how does your project sort of reinterpret the idea of what folk culture is?
3: So it's a tricky term, right? And so throughout the project, I was like, do I really need to use it? We all have these kind of fraught terms in our writing that we are always trying to reevaluate. But I kept coming back to folk culture because that's, in fact, the term that the figures in my study are using to talk about, um, uh, say, Black vernacular speech, music, rituals, dance, sort of uh, these everyday uh, practices of Black folk, right? But it has many different meanings, right? So in our current lexicon, I guess, we might say that something is folksy, meaning down to earth, or we might refer to um, folk music, which we could understand as the kind of, uh, roots music. Right. But in the era of the Harlem Renaissance, um, I think it's useful to understand folk culture in the context of the great migration where black people are moving to urban centers mainly, but not exclusively in the North. Uh, so there uh, emerges this idea that they are leaving something behind, right? Their folkways, the way they talked, their music, um, their rituals, um, And that these things that uh, had been left behind could be inspiration for an authentic, usable past that could inspire modern art. And so I'm paraphrasing Elaine Locke here. Elaine Locke is um, understood to be really, you know, one of the midwives of the Harlem Renaissance, he was often called. Um, And he um, publishes this anthology, The, The New Negro, in 1925. Um, and so sort of his ideas about what constituted the old Negro and the new Negro became very influential, right? This kind of binary that the old Negro, otherwise known as the folk, right, were, um, uh, mainly a a Southern people, mainly located in rural areas, right? Um, this idea that they, um, had these great sort of uh, cultural productions that could inspire writers, right? Um, and so scholars of the Harlem Renaissance have been rightly critical of, the, of this gesture, I'm of sort of saying like, uh, of this kind of geographical binary where the South often appears like it's in this um, pre-modern time that is uh, divorced from what's happening in the North. Uh, of course, we know <laughs> that that's not true. We've come to understand the South as a side of modernity and in its own right. Um, but part of what I argue in the book is that this more complicated understanding of the South, or what Locke calls uh, the old Negro, is not an invention of contemporary critics, right? It was always there. Um, so if you look at the people that he anthologizes in the new Negro, like uh, Hughes, Hurston, Tumor, Walrand; these are all people who are in the book, by the way, um, the idea of folk culture that they are uh, trying to formulate or theorize is um, quite a bit more com- complicated than this kind of romantic ideal of, you know, authenticity and sort of like um, this... Um, almost static idea of folk culture, right? Uh, that it's not subject to transforma- for transformation and development. Um, but in fact, if you look at um, someone like Hurston or Hughes and the way that Hughes is uh, thinking about blues music as this sort of product um, of uh, Black modernity, right? And how it encapsulates all of this social commentary, um this historical commentary, right? We get a much more complicated picture of folk culture. Um, and so I began looking at sort of these historical flashpoints. Um, and there are a few of these in the book. So I look at the construction of the Panama Canal and the stories that emerge around that. I look at uh, the U.S. occupation of Haiti. I look at sort of ongoing um U.S. involvement in Cuba, right? Um, And all of the sort of cultural production that was commenting on these events in real time, right? So this idea that folk culture is not a thing of the past is something that these writers take up um, and they feel is very powerful um, in a way that they're actually leaning into the modern and saying something very profound about
0: That's shopify.com
2: slash system. And so th- let's talk a little bit about the organization of the book, right? So uh, which you just spoke about a little bit. So you organized the book into two sections. Uh, what does each s- section sort of focus on? And what was sort of the thinking that you had in this organization behind the sort of separation of the two parts?
3: You know, that's an interesting question because uh, the separation uh, was there in my mind, but didn't come like in the book until very late in the process of production, when I realized, oh, actually, my thinking has crystallized around these two ideas. So the first book, the well, <laughs> slip of the tongue, but that might actually be accurate. <laughs> these could have been two uh, different books. But the first uh, part of the book is called um, Writing the Crossroads. And that was actually the title of my dissertation, Um, And I'll talk a little bit more about the figure of the crossroads, too, because um, it becomes really important in the first chapter, especially. Um, But um, it was really, uh, the first part of the book is really about writing, you know, about um, different genres of writing, the short story collection of Walrent, the hybrid um, book of uh, Gene Tilmer's Kane which is poetry, skits, you know, dramatic sketches. And then um, Zora Neale Hurston and Jean Price-Mar uh, writing these ethnographies uh, about Haiti around the time of the U.S. occupation, of Haiti. Um, and so um, in the first half of the book, um, I'm really interested in how uh, these writers experimented with these literary genres and sort of um opened them up and broke out of uh what what might be understood as these master narratives that um that we often have about modernity and folk culture so the second half of the book though um there's still a writing there because I I look at the poetry of Nicolás Guillén and Langston Hughes but I'm also looking at um just the history of recitation of the poetry, right? So I look at this 1946 uh, production of Cuban Evening, the poems um, and songs of Nicolás Guillén, and that was um, a Catherine Dunham uh, production. And so i become interested in the ways that um, not only the print culture uh, of the poetry, but the ways that it was recited and circulated. And I look at a figure called uh, Eusebia Cosme, who was um, specialized in declamation. And declamation is, it's not just recitation, it's theatrical. It involves sort of music, it involves costume changes, right? And um, what I argue in that chapter is that these performances of poetry are just as much a part of the literary history um, of that work as, you know, the written poems, and it gives us sort of a different understanding of the figures that are familiar to us, like Langston Hughes, when we think of Langston Hughes sort of like um, putting on his, his dinner jacket and <laughs> um, and reciting, you know, translations of Nicolás Guillén's poems. We know that he at least recited a couple of them in Spanish. And again, often like playfully poked fun at Hughes's accent, you know. And so these little details, I think, are important to understanding um, what it means to perform the archive. And that's the title of the second part of the book, right? Um, So then I have that chapter on um, Afro-Cuban poetics, and I also have a chapter on Sylvia Winter. And I look at her early um, kind of career as a dancer and also a playwright uh mainly to satisfy my own curiosity right when i discovered a while ago that she began her career in uh bosco holder's uh dance troupe and holder is a trinidadian choreographer i was like wow you know this this seems to be just as important to thinking about her intellectual formation as her early essays uh, Let's learn more about this. And so in, in performing the archives, um, the title of that section is just as much about my own method as it is about these performances themselves, in the sense that um, I had to think about what it meant to kind of reconstruct these performances from fragments in the archive, <laughs> And that in and of itself is a kind of, of critical performance, right? It involves a lot of um, speculative thinking, but it also involves uh, the imperative to argue that uh, these performances are important and worth engaging with, even in all of their kind of uh, opacity.
2: Well, um so let's get into these chapters a little bit deeper then, right? So like you said, chapter one sort of focuses upon uh, sort of the crossroads of works that views both the American South and also the uh, Caribbean, right? So can you talk to us about how your reading of these works sort of broadens what you call the geographical contours of the Harlem Renaissance?
3: Yeah, and it's almost, um, you know, to go back to Eric Walren, right? Um, I was interested in, on one hand, um, this recuperative gesture of simply Saying well, um, the Caribbean writers beyond Claude McKay, who's very important, but I think um, we often stop there talking about uh, Caribbean contributions to the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but folks like Wallrend, uh, another writer, uh, Eula Lee Spence, who was um, a play a playwright, um, not only sort of contributed to this conversation that was already happening but they changed the conversation right so to think about um a work like tropic death that is published at the height of the Harlem renaissance but kind of um turns our gaze elsewhere right to the panama canal zone um, but to this real engagement not only with the caribbean but for what it meant to think about the relationship between the U.S. and the Caribbean at this time of sort of increased uh, military intervention, right, into the Western Hemisphere, um, changes the conversation about, you know, what were the key questions that um, shaped Black modernity. But um, at the same time, so I'm thinking about Walren but I'm thinking about this comparison, how he and Gene Toomer were often sort of listed together as two of these just young, promising, experimental writers. I'm like, well, there, that has, to, there has to be something more to that, right? In one of Walren's first stories, uh, there's this quote saying, uh, we're in Barbados, right? Um, but he's saying, you know, it was not Sepia, Georgia, but a backwoods village in Barbados, right? So he makes that... Uh, comparison or that um, that gesture of saying it was not this, it was that, right? But knowing that the description of the Backwoods Village in Barbados really resembles <laughs> some of the descriptions of just the southern landscape in Gene uh, tumors cane. And so I began thinking about those moments in cane, right, where we have um, sugar cane, which is you know, uh, abundant in the Caribbean. Um, And we have sort of um, rum and cassava and all of these things that I think um, critics had sort of read as just a kind of tumor's kind of primitivist touch, you know. He's just referencing these things. But actually, I'm like, well, this kind of locates us or connects us to the Caribbean, so it was not just the case that uh, Walren and these Caribbean riders were thinking about these connections, but um, that these riders of the South were also thinking about them. Right. Um, and so what does it mean to, for instance, expand the geographical contours of the South uh, into, you know, the Caribbean Sea Um And some of the writers did this quite literally in terms of their travels, right? So Langston Hughes. He had this um, kind of journal uh, that I um, saw in his papers at uh, the Bonnicki Library at Yale. And uh, the journal is titled uh, Journey South or something like that. But then he lists uh, all of these locations, you know, Georgia, et cetera. But then he says Haiti and Cuba, right but these are part of his journal titled journey south right and so thinking about um of course thinking about the global south but thinking more specifically about this regional connection between um the south uh the caribbean and to a great extent and thinking about the panama canal zone central america
2: wonderful and so chapter two then um it looks at these responses to U.S occupation of Haiti that happens in sort of the early 20th century. Um, so how does this chapter help us to sort of understand folk culture as an alternative mode of occupying space in the face of sort of imperial uh, occupation?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, let me tell you this chapter was difficult to write um, because so uh, So this chapter um, centers around uh, Zoranil Hurston's Tell My Horse. Which is um, her ethnography of uh, travels to uh, Jamaica and and Haiti. The the Jamaican section is is the shorter section. She spends most of her time talking about Haiti. Um, and um, this is often regarded as um uh, one of Hurston's really her worst book. <laughs> is the way that people they try to put it more diplomatically than that, but. It's regarded as one of her most problematic because of the way that she kind of says the U.S. occupation of Haiti, right, which took place um, from 1915 to 1934, uh, which they completely kind of restructured uh, the Constitution. They um, It was often this sort of cultural assault on voodoo uh, temples, which were raided and Many of the Marines just brought back these kind of sacred artifacts uh, just as curiosities to the United States. Um, It's also where I would argue we have the origins of sort of uh, zombie um, culture in the United States. So taking this idea of the um, Haitian idea of the zombie, which was really someone who was reduced to non-being by labor, and often labor that was overseen by the United States uh, in the form of the corvée, which was this obsolete law that required, you know, citizens to do work on roads that was similar to the work done in enslavement, right? Um, So all of these things that happened during the occupation, and Hurston comes in in 1938 and says, you know, maybe the occupation wasn't such a bad thing. And she has this section of the ethnography called uh, Rebirth of a Nation that is really almost talking about the arrival of um, U.S. Marines in this kind of uh, almost this image of a white savior, right? So this is regarded as like one of uh, her's more embarrassing political stances. But then you have the sections of the book where she uh Has these beautiful, um, beautiful descriptions of uh, Haitian art and in particular uh, of spirit possession in which uh, spirit possession becomes sort of this way of speaking truth to power. Right. And so there are these kind of uh, what the critic Daphne Brooks would call these dissonant gestures. Right. That tell a different story than the one that Hurston seems to be telling, you know. About the occupation. Um, and so part of the work of this chapter was figuring out just what to do with this text because um, there are a few critics who have written very smartly and I think fairly about it. But what I became curious about is were the larger conversations uh, that Hurston was part of or that were even going on, right, among Haitian scholars themselves is that's often the the missing piece, right? There's not just what Hurston and uh, people like uh, James Weldon Johnson, who wrote much more sympathetically <laughs> about the occupation and self-determining Haiti. Uh, it's not just about what these U.S.-based writers were saying. It's also about the conversations going on in Haiti. So I turn to uh, Jean-Price Ma, who... Is this towering figure in Haiti? Right, he uh, was an ethnographer. He was a physician, uh, a, a philosopher, um, and becomes this kind of um, leading voice of the the Haitian elite in the nineteen twenties. And he publishes an ethnography called par Parle Langue," which means uh, "So Spoke the Uncle." Right, uh, the uncle being sort of this figure, a patient folklore, right, in, in storytelling. And so one of the important arguments he makes in the in that ethnography um, is that uh, voodoo is, um, is a real religion. It's a valid religion that is worthy of study and is worthy of respect. And it's not simply a psychosis, which is the way that possession had been talked about, you know, prior to that. Um, But I think the most essential argument he makes in that book is that it's um, an anti-imperial statement, right? That in fact, uh, look at the wealth of knowledge production that has come out of Haiti, right? Um, We are not in need of being saved. (laughs) And certainly not in need of being saved by the U.S. And if we don't sort of Um, take a hold of this rich history, you know, we are further at risk of being kind of subsumed and absorbed by this imperial power to the North. And so when he wrote this, the occupation was still going on, of course. And so there's an urgency to it. Um, And there's, you know, as a result of this, there's this kind of um, flourishing of intellectual production in Haiti and beyond, because Price Marr is the person who um, is kind of responsible for showing people around, like James Weldon Johnson when he comes to Haiti, right? Or like Melville Herskovitz, right? So he also um, facilitates this, this whole age of Haitian studies in which U.S. researchers are coming to Haiti, uh, very interested in uh, studying culture. And so they often came through him. Uh, so I find this to be incredibly important because um, the origins of what we think of, and this is part of the argument of the chapter of diaspora studies emerging in this kind of, um, in Price Mars' kind of anti-imperial stance towards the U.S. Uh, and the need to sort of reinvigorate that. And so once I put uh, Hurston in conversation with uh, Price Marr and they both, where they would both agree was uh, is in their assessment of spirit possession. And so it's what it meant to sort of occupy the spirit or the place of the spirit, the spirit occupying the body as this sort of alternative form of occupation against U.S. occupation, um, and so in that chapter, I'm interested in where person and price Marr agree and also where they diverge. So it it made it a very interesting chapter to write.
2: It was very interesting to read. I would say that as well. Um, and so chapter three, uh, as you mentioned, sort of starts the second half of this book. Um, and it looks at the 1946 production of Cuban Evening, the poems and songs of Nicolás Guillén. Um, so... Can you tell us what's the argument in this chapter? And also, how does this chapter sort of further our, our understandings of sort of, like, Black folk culture?
3: Yeah, well, this chapter was fun to write. <laughs> they were all fun to, to write in different in different ways. Um, so I'll just tell you about how the chapter developed. That um, in my dissertation at first, it was a chapter about Nikolaskian and Langston Hughes. And Langston Hughes... Um, and Ben Ben Frederick uh, Carruthers, who was um, a professor at Howard um, as translators of uh, Guillen's poetry. And so um, the original sort of uh, topic and argument of the chapter was about sort of the um, importance of uh, translation and and the development of um, transnational poetics, right? Um, And so, but... You know, I began to realize, you know, as I was um, editing this for the book, I was like, well, who was around these people? Like, what What was the larger circle? Because often, I don't know if I actually say this in the book, but often the Nicolás Vien and Langston used pairing is often talked about as this kind of bromance, <laughs> where it's like, you know, these two kind of stood alone in this this, you know, pioneering of you know, translation of Afro-Cuban poetry, uh, when in fact they were actually uh, there were a larger a larger circle of interlocutors uh, around them um, that are equally important, and and some of them are women, right? So we already know about um, Gustavo Orisha in, in Cuba and Ben Frederick Carruthers as uh, Hughes' collaborator. But there was also um, this um, declamadora called Eusebia Cosme, who um, came up in Cuba, was a little little younger than um, Hughes and Guillen, but was certainly their contemporary. And she uh, delivered these um, declamations, these theatrical recitations of um Afro-Cuban poetry and I should clarify that in Cuba Afro-Cuban poetry or poesia negra um could be any work that was on black themes right not necessarily by black writers <laughs> so there's um part of the work of the chapter is to think about what things translate and what things don't you know across uh National boundaries, and that's that's one of them, is that we might think of poesía negra, black poetry in the United States, as poetry written by black people, whereas um, in Cuba and in much of Latin America, uh, it didn't necessarily mean that. Um, but she does recite Nicolás Guillén's uh, poetry. Nicolás Guillén, who is a poet of um, African descent uh, in Cuba, and wrote these poems about um song music using the rhythms of um uh this music that incorporated um the you know bango and many other sort of um African derived instruments, right? And it was a kind of street music. Um and so I began to ask the question about, you know, well what role did Nicolas poetry play in her repertoire, right? And Um, To my surprise, she had a radio show on CBS (laughs) in the 1940s in which it it had a large, uh, it was, I think, coming out of East Harlem, but it was broadcast, you know, across Latin America. And uh, she recited the poetry in translation of um, Langston Hughes, and Paul Lawrence Dunbar, in addition to uh Nicolás Guillen. And so in many respects, she had this very broad audience, right, that it's kind of hard for writers to have on their own. And so um, part of what I argue in this chapter is that um, in many respects, she's just as important to, um, she was just as important to the kind of spread of Nikolaskian's poetry and the sort of Uh, audience interaction with these poetics as you know any writer was um and so I mean the challenge of this chapter and also the thing that was fun about it to write was um I was in the Langston newspapers I think and I found this uh program from this 1946 production of Cuban evening the poems and songs of Nicolás Guillén And on this program, I see that it's a Catherine Dunham production. I see, like, and Hughes. I see featuring Hughes and Eusebia Cosme. But I also see Eartha Kitt, you know. I also see um, Candido, who's this this famous uh, Afro-Cuban musician. I see, like, all of these interesting um, people who, uh, you know, I was like, what was this about? Um, And so the challenge of this chapter was... I'm trying to reconstruct a single evening um, in 1946 based on uh, really, you know, I started with this program and I began to find other fragments, such as in correspondence from Catherine Dunham to Langston Hughes talking about what he's going to be wearing, which was a simple dinner jacket, um, correspondence about... Eusebia uh, Cosme wanting to have an additional dress rehearsal because she was very meticulous um, about things um, coming from particularly coming from the theater right and what that sort of um, those performance practices how they were different from what Lex and Hughes might have been used to with you know poetic just readings of his own poetry it's like No, we're going to have dress rehearsals, you know, Um, and uh, just these little um, sort of tidbits, right, that when I was writing my dissertation, I would not have known what to do with because there was this notion that, you know, anything that didn't really fit into the argument, you got to scrap that because you got to finish this chapter, right? (laughs) <laughs> and so in writing the book, I had I felt like I had a little bit more space to say, no, I'm going to follow that thread and I'm going to see what I can make of it. And um, and the result is um, uh, this kind of what I feel is like this momentous event, you know, happening in 1946 and happening before. Um, Langston Hughes publishes uh, Cuba Libre which is his translation of um, Guillen's poetry so what I what I argue is that you can see uh, in the drafts of the poems that Hughes is translating the changes he made uh, after this performance and in preparation for this performance so in what ways did the performances themselves kind of shape What later uh, became the written translations of Nicolaskian's poetry and also uh, Cosme's sort of incredible influence, you know, um, in in this uh, sphere of Afro-Cuban poetics, which is often talked about as if there were only men.
2: And so chapter four focuses on Sylvia Winter, um, and as you've already spoken about, it focuses upon her work as sort of a dancer, a playwright, and a radio actor in the 1950s uh, in London. Uh, you've told us sort of why you focused on this early career, the fact that it was so interesting to you. Um What specifically was sort of interesting about this sort of early portion of Winter's career and how does it sort of sum up this exploration that you have into this like Black folk culture?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to me because it allows us to place Winter as in part of this historical moment of uh, West Indian writers, dancers, artists, creators who are coming to London at this moment, right? We're part of what began became calls as the uh, Windrush generation, right? Um, so in 1948, this was the name of the ship. That's why it's called the Windrush, right? Um, a ship arrived, made Caribbean migrants on, and sort of sort of opened, you know, a floodgate of um, Caribbean subjects who are often understood themselves as British subjects, right? Because this is uh, pre-Jamaican independence, for example. Um, And so they're like, well, we're here, you know And uh, it's interesting because um, The poet Louise Bennett has this poem Called Colonization in Reverse And she's talking about uh, this migration From the Caribbean to the metropole And this kind of, as this kind of uh, um, Almost like this insurgent gest- gesture It's like, we're here You said we were British subjects, you know We're here to uh, reap the benefits. We're here to take advantage of opportunities. But most of all, we're here to be amongst each other. right? right? And so um, I think it was crucial to place Winter as part of this. But interestingly enough, so she does this interview with uh, David Scott, which everyone should read. It's around 90 pages, (laughs) but there's so much in there. And she talks about... um, being in London during this time, and and Scott is asking her, "Oh, were you hooked into this network of writers that we all know? You know, were uh, in London at this time?" And she says, "No, I was actually more linked into the dancers. Um, I was part of this Bosco Holder's dance troupe, and that was far more my world." Uh, she's adamant about correcting that, right? And so I wanted to take that gesture. Seriously, and thinking about dance as uh, not only, you know, this thing that she did before she became an intellectual, right, but part of her intellectual formation. And she talks about taking classes at King's College in London and um, going out from her lectures and going basically across the street to Bosco Holder's dance studio, right? And so this movement back and forth between sort of the Academy and the dance studio is one that you know I felt was symbolic of what Winter does in her own work. And especially in that first, um, one of her early essays, Jean Canu in Jamaica, which is an essay about dance. I would even argue that it's, uh, it constitutes performance theory. Um, and she talks about just uh, the power of dance, and especially in carnival rituals, because the whole idea of carnival was that things were turned upside down, things were inverted. Right, we're imagining a moment in which the world is is different from you know <laughs> from what we experience every day. Right. And she says, well, this is a, a revolutionary gesture. This is revolutionary imagination encapsulated in dance. And so I thought that it was important to see Winter not only theorizing this, but practicing it as a dancer herself. Um, so part of the chapter um, discusses Winter as a dancer. And then the other part is discussing her plays, um, some of which were performed on stage, but many of which were on uh, BBC radio. And um, I see these plays as her kind of um, grappling with some of the kernels of some of the ideas that would expand later on in her work. Like, you know, quite simply, what what does it mean to be human? What is our relationship uh, um what is the relationship between the black body and the earth or the landscape um and so she has a couple of um plays and short stories that were aired uh on BBC radio that deal specifically with um you know imagery of of cultivation uh or even sometimes what it means to be uh a landowner but to have that that um, land sort of overgrown with with weeds. Uh, they call this uh, ruin it in the Caribbean, which means um, land that was meant to be cultivated but now is uh, you know overrun and overgrown. And winter finding some um, potential in ruin it, right? In the, the wildness of it all. Um, and so I think that these early works are very. Um, informative of where she would eventually go with some of her scholarship. Um, And I just think it's interesting to imagine her (laughs) on radio, like dealing with this uh, early technology and uh, which gave her an audience, right, which um, broadcasted to uh, the Caribbean. Um, And um, so was consumed by everyday folk. And I think about Sort of the what listening practices that they may have had, right? And so um, this chapter sort of culminates the book in many ways because um, Winter, um, in at least the the sixties and seventies, starts to explicitly talk about folk culture, and what she begins talking about is is dance, but she's also talking about you know, storytelling. She's also talking about uh, spirit possession very explicitly. Um, And so the idea that she wants to, uh, and I get the phrase reinterpret folk culture from Winter because part of what she's doing is um, trying to articulate the urgency of reimagining folk culture now By now, I mean, (laughs) when Wichita is writing um, in the 1960s, in which you have all of these sort of nationalist movements that are taking up, you know, local folk culture. And she's like, well, we need to be careful. (laughs) We need to be careful in how, um, in not sort of erasing the subversive uh, potential of folk culture. We can't just use it as, you know, a blunt instrument to um, become powerful or to become dictators, like we saw uh, in Haiti with uh, Duvalier, who took up all of the trappings of you know folk figures in the way that he presented himself. And so, um, part of what Winter is trying to argue is that um, we have to have discernment and sort of like this um, this um, critical lens when we look at folk culture, but it's so urgent to reinterpret it now because it represents sort of the very heart of self-invention, right, for Black people. So we still need it, right? Um, So in many ways, the book comes full circle uh, from Winter in the prologue, sort of turning the world upside down (laughs) and how that becomes a framework for what all of these... Uh, figures are doing. And then um, going back to sort of her own um, practice as a dancer and as a playwright and how important um, the creative life was for her um, in formulating her later theories. And what
2: sort of audience did you imagine for this work?
3: Mm. Well, um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, as I was writing this book, I was like, you know, I want my friends to be able to read this. (laughs) Like that's not the answer that, um, you know, often that the official answer that you give, but uh, I wanted them to find something familiar in it. Um, One of my uh, best friends, her uh, grandfather, or great-grandfather worked on the Panama Canal. And actually I didn't know that until... I started working on this project and she was like, Hey, did you know, (laughs) did you know that my, uh, great-grandfather worked on the Panama Canal? And so I think that those conversations have been the most rewarding. And I've been having a lot of them, um, here, you know, in and around, uh, the, the New York area. Uh, but, um, I think so, uh, part of the audience that I want for this book are people who feel personally connected to the histories that I'm talking about. Um, of course, scholars of the Harlem Renaissance. And so I live in Harlem right now. So scholars of the Harlem Renaissance could mean just people walking down the street. <laughs> Cause they'll tell you like Langston Hughes used to live there, you know, on 127th street. Um, I live on a historic street, you know, right now. Um, that I'm sure you know, someone could tell me about, right? So, um, scholars of the the Harlem Renaissance and and many of the ways you can interpret that. Um, and um, while uh, writing this book, I had the opportunity to travel a lot to go to the um, to go to Haiti. I went to the Faculty of Ethnology, which was founded by uh, Jean Price-Mars. I went to the Fundacion Nicolás Guillén in Cuba. I went to, (laughs) uh, I went to Panama City, uh, the Museo Afro-Antiano there. Um, And so these are some of my audiences as, as well, uh, quite literally in presenting my work and sharing what I was doing with, um, with these organizations that have been so important with, important in, uh, perpetuating these histories. So I would say that um, these are my central audiences, um, both both scholarly and, you know, our everyday intellectuals.
2: And what do you want readers to take away from this work?
3: I think um, part of what I want them to take away is just um, the richness of what has been produced, in, um, you know, the we- the Western Hemisphere, but specifically in this um, this flow of culture between the U.S. and the Caribbean. But I also want them to take away that um, this idea that what we know of today as diaspora studies really emerges, it, emerges uh, not only in this reckoning with the afterlives of slavery, but um, this reckoning with U.S. imperialism and colonialism and Jim Crow. So this continued need to be critical about um the US the US's involvement in the in the Caribbean, um, ongoing involvement in Haiti in in particular, and what what is our responsibility to sort of know the nuances of that history um and to develop our politics uh, around, you know, a real concern for um for you know our mutual um survival. So that's what I would like people to take from it. Wonderful.
2: Uh well Dr. Owens we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh but I have one last question for you. What are you working on now?
3: Ooh, so I actually uh like this question. <laughs> um I am working on so coming out of this book which is um which was my way, you know, this first book was my way of talking about writing, but also talking about music, dance, uh, storytelling, um, all of these uh, non-written forms as well. Uh, The second book is going to be on the concept of rehearsal in Black literary performance culture. So it's called Rehearsal, Um, Black Performance and the Practice of Freedom. Or something like that. (laughs) And um, I came up with the idea after reading James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues. And there's this scene in it where Sonny is practicing the piano almost like obsessively. And the people that he's um, staying with, uh, at first, you know, they encourage it because it's keeping him out of trouble. Right. But it almost becomes a kind of torment because... His practicing is so repetitive, so obsessive. They say it's not like living with a person, it's like living with sound. And I became fascinated fascinated with this idea of practice as something that is so crucial to uh, Black artistic formation, but also Black survival. But the idea that practice or rehearsal can also be this difficult thing, you know, that uh, it can, it can be painful. <laughs> and um, so rehearsal really is like about this practice of anticipation and what it means to sort of be in the moment and being maybe anticipating a performance. But r- what it's really about is being right there in the present. Um, and um, I sort of changed my thinking about this during the pandemic Uh, when we really were kind of in a holding pattern and what it meant to do something right now um, as a rehearsal for black freedom, right. That was important in its own right and not just about the outcome. And so I'm looking forward to really digging into this project next.
2: Yeah, that sounds like a great project. I'll, I'll definitely look out for it. I hope that the listeners will as well. Um, Well, Dr. Amani Owens, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the book as well. Take care.